0: Everyone, welcome to another edition of Founder Wisdom Podcast. Today, we have Anthony Domini with us. He is CEO and founder of Pathmaker Brands. Anthony, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about Pathmaker?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Charles. Um, As you said, uh, founder of Pathmaker Brands. I started it a year ago, um, largely just based off of my passion for marketing and branding and the strategy around that. And really what that does for organizations, the clarity that comes from knowing your brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became a, you know, sort of brand certified guide uh, several years ago. And ever since I found that amount of clarity and how to help people define those messages, get clear, and then pull that forward into marketing strategy, I've just always been looking for excuses to serve people with that. So... That's why i started pathmaker
0: yeah pretty cool and uh, serve is the keyword here your background i mean you've been an executive pastor you've been chief of staff also which is pretty cool tell us a bit more about that experience yeah,
1: so um, I grew up in church. It's always been uh, an integral part of my life. I, the earliest memory I have of church with, with my, my parents was we were at a set-up tear-down church at a community center, and I remember setting up and tearing down chairs, right? So serving at church has always been a part of uh, my life. And um, yeah, five years ago, six years ago, my wife and I felt led to serve at this church, And uh, it it evolved into the role of executive pastor and leading people. We had about 25 people on staff, over 2,000 people going to the church on the weekend, um, which was a a wild experience. There's a very uh, unique kind of leadership and er experiential challenge that you're solving when you're leading paid staff, Mm -hmm. unpaid volunteers, Mm -hmm. while also trying to serve the people that call it their home. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also a lot of opportunity when it comes to leadership development and how you help people grow in their skill sets and connecting all those things together. So it was, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about hard conversations. I learned a lot about conflict. I learned a lot about clarity and role definition and expectations um, through that season, as well as continuing to stay focused on, as you said, what's critical about serving people and staying focused on that even when organizationally it gets confusing.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, this type of business very much led by Christian values um, and I can try to picture the uh, the environment and the the setting. It must be nicer than a business. Is it like better flowing, or is there um, more conflicts as well? Like, tell tell me a bit more about the business because I don't know the day to day about running a, a church. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, most people don't. You know, I was talking with somebody uh, not too long ago about the the stress and the challenge of being. A leader in a church, and I was just mm-hmm. telling them, I was like, most people are never going to fully understand because they're going to assume, what do you do during the week? Don't you just make a church trip and have it on a Sunday? Seems like an easy job. <laughs> um, I would say one of the things that makes it uniquely challenging is that uh, it's it's a good and a bad thing. That everything in your life is in one bucket. Yeah. So the one of the biggest challenges of you know being an organizational leader at a church is that your whole life is now framed by this one. Thing, this one King, mission. King. So that makes it really hard to have boundaries. Hmm. And I don't even just mean physical boundaries when it comes to, oh, I'm at the church this day. I'm at the, Now that's part of it. The hardest thing is the emotional and mental boundaries, because you're just thinking about it all the time. And because the mission that you're on is so good, you know, hmm. it's you're, you're, you're adding such value. So it's, it's sort of impossible not to obsessively think about it, and it makes it really hard to stay healthy mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. Yeah. And then the other challenge is, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're working with volunteers. And hey. leading volunteers is, is a real
0: unique kind of challenge. Hey, what, is it a paid role, uh, chief of staff?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the big is relative, I suppose. <laughs> um, it certainly was the biggest role I've ever had, uh, leading that amount of paid staff and hundreds of volunteers and stuff. Um but you know there are definitely bigger roles. Peter oh, Drake paid. Pay.
0: Was it paid like um, oh my it was yeah, my role yeah. paid? Yeah, yeah, yes,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I was always Okay, paid.
0: okay, and yeah, managing volunteers, they eh? well, I think um yeah, the motivation is there from these individuals, um, but also there's some limits, right? Because they, they need to to you know get money in their life and pay their expenses. So I, I guess it's it's kind of limited, but um, would would you say that it's a higher quality of human now that you're managing uh, non-volunteers and it's a different type of business? It's a marketing business. What was the difference, in the, the difference between both organization and the quality of employees?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I would say my time leading in church has made me a significantly better leader. Okay. Because when you're leading volunteers, you are forced to learn the skills that are driven by empathy, empowered leadership, meaning what does this experience look like for a volunteer or do they love their work? Do they not? Um, Which largely determines whether or not they stay engaged. Mm -hmm. So then bringing that into a paid space is not entirely unique. There are organizations that think this way, but many don't. And it does limit the type of experience from a business perspective you can provide for the quality of their life but I've definitely brought that into my career post church world. And I am still obsessively focused on uh, my work environment being a great place to work, holding people to high expectations, but clarifying my standards and uh, trying to serve them in their experience and working with with us at Pathmaker. So it does change your worldview and how you you serve the people that you lead. Because if you spend all of your time in the business space, you have very tangible carrots and sticks yeah. And those are way easier to use to motivate people, but they're not sustainable ways. And they're not healthy ways to motivate people, as opposed to inspiring people towards a mission, inspiring them to higher standards, calling them to a a, bit, a bigger and grander mission than themselves. Those are things that make it a great place to work. Or that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Wow. Yeah, very cool experience indeed. And that led, led you to chief of staff at uh at Vive and Boost Media, and as you told me, the experience there was uh, was more or less interesting, but you learned an uh, interesting lesson uh, there, right? Yeah,
1: so I actually launched PathMaker as I was leaving my church job, and... Um, then I got connected with, with someone else who runs a, a similar business in the church space and long story short, we decided to kind of merge our businesses together. I moved my clients over uh, so we could build these two companies in concert. One was a business focus. One was a church focus. Now he had already had the church business um, thriving and I was planning, Hey, let's build this two doors to the same house, essentially. Um, and yeah, became the chief of staff, uh, working closely with him on it. and. Uh, Yeah, I I don't want to say anything disparaging, (laughs) but uh, essentially there was a lot of issues with paying staff, Mm. myself included, um, and uh, a lack of transparency in the the running of the business. What did you um, learn from that? uh, I would say the two biggest things I learned, the first is learning how to trust your gut and taking action on it.
0: Mm. Wow, that's a powerful one. Yeah, I've got that lesson too. Many times over in the the past couple of years, you know, when the the gut tells you no, um, listen to your system and just you know don't do it. Um, but in some situation, I found that you know that, that's that kind of fear. I wanted to take it head on, and I needed to do the thing. Although my gut would tell me like, no, you're, you're I want to put the the fear down at all costs, basically, and yeah, although the experience is not always pleasant then i i can still say afterwards i've um relinquished my my fear i i got the victory over my fear what is the equilibrium between following your gut and facing your fears
1: wow powerful question um well you know when i think about gut uh malcolm gladwell has a book called blink which is an amazing book that sort of just explains this thesis that your blink, your quick, fast reactions is actually your body and brain doing a lot of difficult math, You know, a lot of bringing in all these variables and making decisions. And a lot of times people don't trust their blink assessments because they assume because they're fast, they're worse. But they're actually not worse. They're actually really apt. You, you, you have learned survival mechanisms and all this kind of stuff. So I think a big part of that is better understanding your gut. And your gut is not always right either. And maybe you had a bad taco and, and you're feeling a little goofy, you know, and you, you just need to deal with your bowels. Um, but, you know, kind of testing your gut, experimenting, understanding with, with what it feels like in different ways. And fear is a part of your gut reaction to things. And, and then I think within that too, there's healthy fear and then there's unhealthy fear. Healthy fear is telling you this is a red flag, right? And then there's unhealthy fear, which is uh, ang- anxiety in essence, right? You're, you're trying to predict the future. You know you ought to do something and, and you, you're so afraid to do it that you don't do it. And I think it really then comes down to, is this healthy or unhealthy fear? And then going to the why of that, the core of that, which, which very well could be, I know I should do this, but I'm afraid. Then it's like, hey, you got to just stick it out. Um, which a lot of founders and, and you know myself included, oh my gosh, I've had a lot of dark moments in this past year. Yeah. Um, or you get to that core and you go, um, no, this is a fear that's telling me I, I ought not to do this and to trust that and to, to, to actually be brave enough, courageous enough to have the hard conversation, take that action, quit the job, fire the employee, change the business model, whatever things you need to do that your gut's telling you to do when you know you ought to do it
0: sure yeah the equilibrium question is always a tricky one because it it ought to be answered in kind of percentages and in specific situations for example i have a, another upcoming iron man and yeah, sometimes i get stressed about it so yeah my my gut tries to protect me from that uh awful 16 hour day just hustling mm-hmm. and trying to get to the finish line but um it's always worthwhile well, i think um and in any bad experiences, as long as they don't last too long, you know, and take too much of your time, money, and energy, um, you can learn, like, specific lessons out of them, and you can think some more, but indeed, like, what I got from listening to you is that the the gut is, and the, like you said, the, the algorithm is, like, incredible, all the math that goes on, you know, and the body knows that the, it's kind of paired with the brain, with your past experiences, and Man, there's so much wisdom in there. So, yeah, but that that experience led you to you know Pathmaker Brands, which has a very cool website, like I told you. And uh, how, how's that doing nowadays? Who do you target? Um, how's the how's that business going? And where do you see it going the next couple of years?
1: Well, because I know a lot of people that you're talking to on your podcast here, or all of them um, you're talking to and listening to are, are founders, entrepreneurs, and yeah. you know, kind of on this journey. I think everyone uh, listening will understand it's a mixed bag. (laughs) I told someone, if you choose to become an entrepreneur, you need to be comfortable not sleeping because you're either not sleeping because you're too excited or you're not sleeping because you're too scared. So either way, you're not sleeping. (laughs) Um, And so I would say that's where we're at with Pathmaker. You know, it's still a baby company. uh, It's in its infancy. If you're familiar with the startup J curve talks about several phases of the startup life. I think we're very much in the morph stage where we're, we're kind of evolving our product and trying to figure it out and not trying to be too prescriptive on what it is. Um, And, and ultimately I think the biggest challenge that we have with Pathmaker right now is I know our flywheel, which is the Jim Collins concept of how you, you get an organization to move that there's this natural progression of how things feed itself. Our natural flywheel is going to be delivering great work for our clients. And because our work is so public, it's going to then naturally progress into more clients because people will then ask, hey, who does your stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That flywheel, though, it takes a long time. And, and I have been surprised with how long our sales cycle is. I thought with our price points being as, as competitive as they are, that our sales cycle would be faster. People would be willing to just go, hey, yep, yeah, let's do it. Let's start tomorrow. Uh, but it's, our sales cycle takes two or three months. So yeah, I mean, we're in a season right now, I'd say, where, where our margins are thin our business model is is developing, but it's it's secure. we're delivering good value, but it's not as good as I want it to be mm-hmm. uh, but we're on the path so it's 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 an exercise in aggressive patience of being intentional each and every day, making it one percent better, but also being patient and knowing that it's going to take time for us to really develop the machine that we want
0: yeah, for sure, I can relate to lots of what you were saying and yeah, two to three months sell cycle. That um, seems to fit with your uh, price point here. Typically, who are you targeting? What? Who's your target?
1: Well, I think that's part of the challenge, right? We're so we're so young that I don't really know. We're experimenting with lots of different targets. Um, I'd say the broadest definition of our target is between you know companies that are ten to two hundred in size. Okay. Um, that are two to ten million in in revenue,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a CEO or a CMO or, Mm -hmm. you know, surrounding titles Mm -hmm. that are, that feel the weight and responsibility of driving their marketing machine, but they can't do it
0: alone.
1: And our business model is designed to kind of help them run that machine, keep things, you know, delivering month over month. Um, And our, our, one of our goals is to really give business leaders visibility into that machine when a lot of times it feels like a black box. So it's really anybody who feels like they're just kind of overwhelmed with keeping the trains running on time when it comes to their marketing.
0: Yeah. You mentioned uh, that your work is very much public and I'm all in with the open source uh, movement slash philosophy slash mindset. Um, How do you, how, how do you go with like testimonials and, Uh, case studies do you have your client sign a contract saying that hey if we're successful you will allow me to use that material how how does it go
1: yeah good question yeah we have a line item in our contract that essentially says um both the client and pathmaker brands own you know the the creative to be used and i even specify in our on our most recent iteration of our contract um, which I sent out just this week for the first time that I just say specifically Pathmaker Brands has the right to, to leverage the work produced in marketing. Um, Cause I've had a lot of questions, you know, clients come back and say, well, how are you going to use it? You know? Um, and, and they uh, rightly are are trying to understand the, the assumption that, that I'm making or that they're making on, am I going to use it for another client? Am I going to, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, re- reproduce their work or, or mm-hmm. whatever. But I've just started to say, Hey, um, you own this hundred percent, but Pathmaker reserves the right to use this work for marketing.
0: Got it. Um, I'm seeing your packages here, which are quite interesting. Um, How do you go with the unlimited uh, graphic design, unlimited video editing? I call it all you can eat. So to me, that that business model is, I mean, when it gets profitable is like when a client gives you less work kind of, um, and they're like just too busy with other things and then you know like you have less work and as a result you you can get more money why did you and i, I mean on the other side of the equation if um i'm an all- you- can either type of client i can order a bunch of work from you and probably um, profit on my side from you know giving you so much work although i'm pretty sure you have uh, in your contract some limits uh why did you choose this uh, business model and then i'll have a, another follow-up question after that
1: Yeah. So I chose it because I don't want my clients worrying about how many graphics they've asked for when you're talking about driving the overall marketing machine. And there's so much you're trying to keep up with. You go, did I ask for three yet or seven? And I can't remember. And I've been that client before and -hmm. it's so distracting. um, And you're so afraid of those hidden fees, right? It's like, get an invoice back and it's triple or whatever I thought it was going to be. That's, that's a painful moment as a business leader. And I want to save them from that pain. Now, how do you do the business model? Um, I'm largely figuring that out right now. My hypothesis and what's proven so far uh, with our small client base is a few things. One, we're not promising a certain turnaround time. So the balance between turnaround time and unlimited, that's where I think it, it kind of gets impossible to deliver that in value. Because then there are two things that happen. One, mm-hmm. your expectation is sort of impossible to manage. But the worst thing that that happens in my mind is I create a culture for my creative talent that sucks. Mm-hmm. Because now there, they're, my, my creative uh, graphic designer on my team that's assigned to some account, they get a request that comes in at 3.30 p.m. They have plans to have dinner with their friends that night. But now they know they only have 24 hours to deliver a graphic and they asked for a a, a booklet, you know, or something like, you know, really complicated. Now they just ruined their plans. And now my culture is suffering because of the turnaround time. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to make that graphic request, we'll do it and we have very high standards for how quickly we deliver things, meaning we're going to go as fast as we possibly can. Now, there're going to be some clients that that's not good enough for. They don't they're not a fit for us. That's fine. But I do wanna deliver them the freedom that they can ask for as much as they possibly need. And we will do our very best to deliver it. And those that understand and appreciate it, they're gonna be great with that model. Now, the other side of it is how we vet talent is that they're fast and they're good. The second piece is that we are continuing to build and we already have very good systems for efficiency on task lists. Mm-hmm. So a, a good, a good fast graphic designer can then come into an efficient task list and see their list of tasks and rip through them, right? Cause they're, they're being, their economies of scale there. And then the third thing is when we kick off an initiative, our first like two, two, three months, depending on the scope are really in determining the brand. One of those pieces of the brand is the visual brand. So when we get really, we work really, really hard on getting clear on what that vibe is that people want first, very specifically with examples so that when we get into mass production, we have things to pull from, but also we're not doing a ton of back and forth and iterating, which also saves time and efficiency on the machine.
0: Got it. Why did you decided to go um, wider than uh, narrower and like more precise? For example, with top leads, I do cold email for SaaS and marketing agencies. Uh, you seem to offer copywriting, uh, lead gen websites. Why did you decide to go wider? I
1: really the vision I have, which I, I'm sure the product suite will change over time. Right, we're mm-hmm. really in that morph season. So as I learn really what the market values and whatever, sure. I'm sure it'll evolve sure. and get tighter. Mm-hmm. But really, the vision I want to deliver, which the video on the homepage shows in a goofy way, is I want it to be a marketing department in a box. I want you mm-hmm. to be able to to. Outsource, you know, your marketing team and scale it quickly and stay flexible with your costs um, because that gives you value, but it's also better for the creatives. So what I, what I am most excited about, like my sort of like subversive mission in the whole thing is I want to serve the business leaders, but I also want to serve the creative community. And I want designers and video editors and, and website developers and copywriters. Most of them, if they're true creatives, they don't like clients. They don't like dealing with clients. They don't want to talk to clients. They don't want to sell clients. They hate sales. A lot of creatives hate sales. They're not. And I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, but a lot of them are not great business people. They don't want to worry about finances. They don't want to worry about taxes. They don't want to worry about, you know, um, payroll and 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 invoices and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cool. Come into to this creative world. We're going to continue to work hard to create this awesome remote creative culture. You get to set up at a coffee shop and design graphics all day, and your your, your workload is is secure and your payment is consistent, uh, and you still get the flexibility of that that life. So all that to say is my vision is to deliver this kind of intermediary uh, dashboard and, and asynchronous communication that allows business leaders to have that visibility in that marketing department in a box while also protecting creatives from um, pain in the butt clients.
0: Mm-hmm. What are you, th- I've been thinking about deploying um, VP cell fractional v- VP cell service, but um, mm-hmm. My thoughts on the on this specific service was that okay maybe I I might commit too much of my time I think I'll still be selling my time I don't want to sell my time at at this um, level and you know the implication will might be a bit bigger in my case I would recruit uh, closers I would recruit SDRs for some companies and I found that um, this service although kind of cool it's kind of cool because you can uh, get to know a company. In a better way, and get data out of it that you can um, you can use to propel your other businesses. I thought I thought that you know it wouldn't be that much interesting from an economical uh, perspective. What are your thoughts on um, fractional services? In your case, fractional CMO.
1: Yeah, really good, right? So so um, as you scale up in price with Pathmaker, that's largely me determining how much time I need to spend. Yeah. When you're buying at the lower price points, you're buying the machine, right? You're buying the dashboard, you're buying access to the team, you can make requests, form submissions, whatever. I don't touch that, right? And, and that's a part of how we keep the cost low, right? Mm-hmm. Is you can come in and make requests and it goes to Asana and it goes to this or that, and, and the designer executes it and comes back. That's a machine, right? And, mm-hmm. and there are cogs in the machine and it runs with machine like efficiency. Um, fractional CMO or VP of sales work, I think, can work, but the price point has to be right. And there has to be really, really good, clear expectations and boundaries set. Now, one of the biggest challenges with that, in my, my experience, is you can set the expectations all you want. But that client is going to have a really hard time not just seeing you as their full-time VP of sales. Yeah. So their expectations yeah. for your time and what that means are going to be very hard to clearly define. Yeah. I do think there's a world with the right client and the right scope and and the right price point where you could have, and I'm planning on this, a very small set of clients that really see you as more of a full service member of their team and the expectations and performance are aligned. Um, I just think you have to price it right. And you have to be honest with yourself about how many of those you can take on, which is probably like two, maybe three.
0: Yeah, because I think it would be like a sub part-time role, probably, you know, yep. at least 10 hours per week at, at most in my case to make it real. And even in my case, it's just not appealing, but let's say 10 to uh, 20 hours. Um, and yeah, they, they would expect, you know, for you to answer the messages quick, which is also a challenge. You'd probably need an assistant uh, to take that. What I could possibly do is the HR side of things. So either pair them with um, a CMO, um, and uh, I, I could call it fractional CMO. I take 50, uh, the, the fractional CMO takes another 50%, and that could be a way, and there would be technology in the equation that would be assistance and efficiency so that they get you know the, the real uh, CMO service or VP sales in my case. Um, that's the way I would go with it but yeah it's certainly a, an interesting topic and it's, it's kind of very niche Um my dad which is a marketing consultant he did uh, that gig for a couple of companies the the past couple years and yeah I guess he he learned um, he learned interesting stuff with that another thing that may suck if with um, fractional CMO uh, types of, of jobs is that you get paired with a team the existing team the team is you're not you're not kind of fully accepted you know you will be their leader so you yeah. might get into leadership um problems and also the quality of the staff you you don't have the full rights you know to fire them and so forth so you could yes. hit these these obstacles but uh, i want to kind of shift topics here and um well a good way to shift topics would be to talk about two books behind you uh personal curiosity first uh the tim cook one uh, that i had on my list um it's yeah it's Apple, you know, one of the largest companies in the world, top five, most probably if I check the in stock, um, in stock valuations and uh, total market uh, valuation right now. But um, tell me about uh, what, what you learned from the Tim, Tim Cook book and his management style and what he, he did since uh, Steve uh, passed away.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting book. It's not my favorite uh, biographical book it's you know you read like phil Knight's shoe dog for example that's my favorite. that's Um, it reads it's so fun to read and it's so you know illustrative this one's more like like it reads like a textbook you know it's like this is what happened then this happened now um for whatever it's worth what i what i was curious in and i assume most are is you know what does it look like as a leader to come in after this you know hyper creative genius (laughs) and then to to you know push the propel the business forward and i think it's a really Powerful case study in the power of systems efficiency consistency uh, supply chain management right It was a big part of what Tim Cook focused on I think rightly and then in the supply chain management I think part of what was powerful about what he did was he not only focused on improving the supply chain but he focused uh, from a systematic perspective but also from a experiential perspective for those key cogs in the supply chain because you look at these key you know elements of China and, and you know wherever else he um, a lot of those companies are largely dependent upon Apple, right? As Mm -hmm. a primary customer. Mm And so they will do whatever they have to do to make Apple happy. And there was some crazy stuff happening at these, these like, you know, uh, sweatshops, right? Where they're delivering. Foxconn, right?
0: What's that? Foxconn uh, people, Foxconn is like the big manufacturer and people jumping from the windows. They have to put nets.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, first of all, okay. So that that to me was one of the stories that stuck with me too, is they had people committing suicide, and their answer was to put up more nets, <laughs> change it's, your damn you know yes. environment. You, you provide provide counseling services, give people antidepressants, like do the you know, don't just put nets out. That's just like. Uh, that's almost encouraging people to jump. <laughs> it's just, man, just kind of the
0: weird wild. Chinese culture. Like yesterday, I was watching this video of, um, I'm not sure if you saw that one, but the man coming out of the car with like COVID and uh, them kind of uh, holding on to his his hands and kind of shielding with a mask and uh, spraying him with like this stuff. You know, like wow. they. It's like they're they first treat the problem in in a very rational and cold way. And, and well, that's good, like on the short term, but I, I think they should fix also the root problem of of the, well, the, the root of the problem. And yeah, like when you think about that uh, culture, like you said, uh, you know, making it a nice uh, place to work and so forth, increasing the, the work conditions. But yeah, it's like um, the Chinese culture, I've, I've been there and sometimes it's, it's very cold and systematic and, you can still feel the the communist uh in in the culture the communist part in there
1: yeah no i think you're spot on with that and that was something that i think you know that was something i really learned from the shoe shoe dog phil knight book was how he really explained the difference in the culture now that was uh, japan obviously which is different Um, but the takeaway is just the influence of a country's culture um and how different they are in terms of business practices and how you work internationally um which i I do a little bit right we have some some members of our team that are in the states and some that aren't and it's interesting i feel like i've kind of just a little bit started to experience different cultures um and how how these view work and um those relationships and uh it's powerful something to pay attention to
0: second book behind you um armada yes that's a that's a, a cooler one so tell us um a bit about uh that one ernest klein baby yeah.
1: ready player one ready player two um yeah i'm a i'm a cinephile um I think. and so i i grew up i'm a uh, I'm, grew i was born in the 80s but i grew up in the 90s but i loved 80s movies so um mm-hmm. all of those you know back to the future star wars starfighter all that stuff so i fell in love with ernest client through ready player one and then eventually ready player two and so then i was just looking for any excuse to read any of his books and armada uh for those of you who are familiar with the book and the 80s it's like a lot like the last starfighter which was one of my favorite books growing up and had had uh, some of that plus enders game kind of in there so yeah i loved it i loved Ernest. i love um I love all of Ernest Klein's work. And then I also just recently read Project Hail Mary, which is okay. um, the, the author who wrote The Martian. This is his most recent book. Mm-hmm. So I, I always try to, I don't do a good job of this pretty much most of the time, but my target on the board is having a good fiction book and a good nonfiction book I'm reading, okay. um, kind of, kind of balance it out. And I love, Sci-fi. That's like I don't like any other kind of fiction <laughs> to read.
0: Yeah, same here. Sci-fi. Um, so, like, how would you describe yourself as a leader, and what habits have you acquired uh, to make you successful in business in the last couple of years?
1: I will tell you the kind of leader I want to be. Um, the kind of leader I want to be is is a servant leader that is focused on uh, my employees, and I look at that through two lenses. One is that I want to create an environment where there's clarity, where they know what their expectations are and that I bring people around me that want to be held to a high standard, but done in, in love. And I know love seems like a really strong word. um, But I really do want that to be the target that Mm -hmm. I create meaningful relationships with my employees and um, that there's that balance, right? That one, two punch between affirmation and conflict and, and I want both. I want, I want to have people on the team that I'm affirming and telling them they did a great job when they did and being very specific about those things, but then also confronting them be like, Hey, we really have to close this gap this week. Um, I was just having a hard conversation with a member of our team. I've been working with for a long time and we dropped a, a, a ball this week and we've been dropping this ball consistently. And I kind of called him onto the mat a little bit and just said, we cannot continue to drop this ball. Yeah. Um, do you want to do this role or do you want a different role? Mm-hmm. He said he wanted to. And I said, great, I believe in you. What do you need to succeed? Right? So it's kind of that one-two punch of, of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you to a high standard, but I'm also here to help you achieve that. And if yeah. you don't want to be held to a high standard, it's probably not going to be fun working with me because I, I will not settle for subpar experiences. Now, I'm not expecting perfection, but I am expecting that we learn from our mistakes. I'm okay mm-hmm. with making mistakes. I'm not okay with making the same mistakes. Yeah um so i think i think that's one of the key elements of the culture. it's not a it's not a should have culture it is a next time culture um so really working hard to develop that um i forget the second part of your question
0: well like it's uh, your philosophy is kind of um a, a good father philosophy i'd say so it's like push um push for greatness but with love always with love and and empathy. And, you know, I, I can feel that I pictured myself um, as you were talking, if, if you were my leader, for example, and that that's what I would feel, you know, uh, just that most humans, I think um, you need to find the precise ones that wants to be pushed because lots of them, they want to settle for complacency and just working, just just getting their pay, you know, and going home after that, uh, checking Netflix and having a nice weekend. I think most humans settles for that. How do you make sure you find these A-plus players?
1: Well, the best advice I got was work together before you work together. So um, finding opportunities to work together on some kind of projects on a trial basis, I think is is the most powerful way, right? You can interview people um, and you should, you should have interviews and good questions, but un- until you actually have an excuse to work together for some period of time on something, you're just not you're gonna really know what that's like. Um, so that's a big thing, right? Is, is having a hiring process that allows for opportunities for kind of s- scope work. Working together before you work together, I think is you know 30 day trials, 60 day trials, 90 day trials, whatever. Uh, I think are great. We we scale up our pay so generally speaking, we start hourly and then we go to contract and so on from there. Um, so that helps us a lot with that. I think that's a that's a key thing. And then be as clear as you possibly can on the front end. So I was just onboarding a new employee and I was just letting them know like, hey, my expectation because they were they were apologizing because they started at like 10.30 instead of nine or something because they were working on some other personal project. And, I, and uh, I told them, I was like, I don't care. I genuinely don't care when you work,
0: but I do care that we hit
1: our deadlines. So you don't have to apologize for starting at 10.30, but I my standard and expectation is that we're going to deliver and the trains are going to run on time. So if I start to see that's not happening, I'm going to ask you about your work rhythms, but I trust you. So you're good, man. <laughs>
0: Already the end of the podcast. Uh, In a couple of seconds, where can people find out more about you, Anthony?
1: Pathmakerbranding.com. My name is Anthony Domini. Find me on LinkedIn and uh, yeah, let's connect.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Anthony. Have a good day. You too, man. Bye.